daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Finance ministers from APEC member economies agreed to expand output sustainability. The European Union has reached a deal to secure a supply of critical raw materials amid a race with the U.S. and China. Former U.K. Prime Minister David Cameron returns as the Foreign Secretary. You're listening to Road Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Ge Anna in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. Finance ministers from APEC member economies have gathered in U.S. city of San Francisco and agreed to grow their economies with an eye on sustainability. U.S. Treasury Secretary Jenny Yellen has hosted the finance chiefs, saying they collectively expressed a shared commitment to fostering the sustainable expansion of their economies' potential output. Henry Cybrandi has more. The finance minister turned their attention to three different areas, uh, three priority areas. One of them is supply side, and that's expanding productive capacity while uh, improving resilience and addressing inequality, also dealing with issues like labor supply, public infrastructure, and research and development. Then they looked at uh, sustainable finance. Uh, That's the whole uh, climate change affected issue and the whole uh, issue of crypto assets, stable coins, central bank digital currencies, and blockchain technologies, obviously a major issue in the years to come. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, who's leading these discussions, says these long-term priorities don't obscure the fact that a lot of work in those areas and others needs to be done now. We need to further improve our long-term economic outlook by boosting labor supply, innovation, and infrastructure investment in ways that are also sustainable and reduce inequality. We need to put ourselves on a sustainable growth path, one where we safeguard our planet while providing our economies with the clean energy they need to grow. So a lot on these finance ministers played during these discussions. And of course, overhanging all of this is the relationship between the U.S. and China. The more that the U.S. and China can do to alleviate some of the tensions they've had uh, in discussions over the next few days, the more that can be done on that front, obviously, the easier it will be for the other economies. That was Hendrik Cybrandi on the talks among APEC finance chiefs. To delve further into the APEC meetings, let's bring in Dr. Yao Shujie, Chonghong Professor of Economics at Chongqing University. Thanks for joining us, Professor Yao. Hi. Uh, the 30th APEC Economic Leaders Meeting this year features the theme, Creating a Resilient and a Sustainable Future for All. How do you interpret the theme this year? Why resilience and sustainability are emphasized given the pressing needs of the current global economic landscape? Yeah, the two keywords, resilience and sustainability, have the typical meaning. Resilient, especially after the three-year-long COVID-19 pandemic across the globe, they already have a lot of disruption in the global economy. And in order to sustain uh, the economy growth dynamics across the world, to protect the, the human likelihood to reduce inequality and <clears throat> to um, uh, eradicate poverty, so they, they need to be a concerted effort by the key player uh, in the in in the world, particularly the APEC members, which now stand at 21, uh, those are the very important uh, economy power in the world. And as a bloc, it can do a lot of things to uh, sustain the the economic growth. And this is the the, the, the meaning of resilient resilient to shock, resilient to the unexpected uh, external events, and also. Resilient to uh, unexpected conflict between countries, including uh, small-scale uh, wars, in, let's say in Ukraine and also in Israel uh, with the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. Now, sustain- sustainable is also related to the climate change uh, because the climate change issue becomes so important. Like any e- economy development have to consider. Uh, how the growth can be uh, sustained because the temperature uh, aggregate level have been increasing 
which is going to spread the very basic uh, likelihood of the human being as a whole. So whatever uh, economic activities that are conducted in every part of the world have to be related uh, to sustainability. So this is the key force of the 23 APEC meeting. And I expect that China, uh, United States, and other uh, Asian Pacific link countries is going to play a very important role in the process. Mm-hmm. And this is why the, the, the meeting is very important for the timing at this stage. Professor, we know leaders from around the world gather to discuss trade and economic issues that could dramatically impact global business as it covers 38% of the global population, 48% of global trade volume, and 62% of the global GDP. So given that background, what key aspects or topics do you anticipate on the agenda for this year's APAC meetings? The, the agenda which certainly was focused on the two keywords that we had just discussed. I think, um, you know, government policy have to be directed towards infrastructure investment uh, to protect the environment and to maintain a very stable uh, global production industrial supply chain. And um, issues like cross-border uh, investment and international trade, uh, they are going to become very important. Other issues like the digital technology and the application into the real economy and how uh, foreign exchange, uh, foreign trade policy, uh, international finance, uh, they're going to uh, protect this kinds of technological progress. And eventually, it's the innovation and how the innovation can be penetrated, uh, applicated to the real world. This would be the kinds of uh, issue that the, the EPIC meeting would be focusing. And there should be some concerted effort in international trade and investment, and particularly more on the climate change issue, uh, the green uh, development, uh, which would be another important issue, and, and green finance, uh, for instance. They will be discussed. Professor, as you mentioned earlier, also highlighted in the previous report, there are hopes that Washington and Beijing can cool some of their attentions. But given the current pressures from the U.S. uh, against China on high-tech trade tariffs, etc., how do you foresee China-U.S. engagement under the APEC framework? Well, despite the, the, the fairly intensive tension in every aspect that you just mentioned, uh, technology, international trade, investment, and also people-to-people exchange, and so on and so forth. Uh, the United States and China hasn't actually totally decoupled uh, to each other. They still find uh, lots of common issues that would concern themselves and would also uh, be beneficial and influential on the rest of the world. Because by the, by the end, uh, China and the United States are the largest economy and also have the biggest uh, population base. Uh, they are also leading the international technological innovation, particularly in the digital economy and the AI, the Internet of Things and other. So the, the kind of conflict between China and the United States, in, in, to some extent, if the United States have some concern, they if China uh, develops too fast, it may overtake the United States and mitigate, mitigate the kind of dominant position of the United States in the technological sphere. And this is why the United States have used every method to contain China's emergence. On the other hand, uh, in reality, it's very difficult to do so uh, because in international trade, despite the trade tariff and also the kind of technological embargo China have managed to maintain a very steady path of uh, economic growth and also international trade. In addition, China has been fully able to diversify the, the trade and investment destination apart from the United States. Mm-hmm. And in terms of uh, breaking out the technological uh, you know, blockage, China have actually have a fairly uh, powerful research base in terms of the semiconductor, the aerospace technology, the new energy sector, and so on. To some extent, China is the biggest um, uh, in, in a global economy and the biggest market. The United States should also know the benefit of uh, in, in working with China. 
And this is why there are still uh, lots of opportunity and windows that the two countries can work together. And I hope that in this APEC meeting, the top leader, including the Ministry of Finance and, and, and the central bank leaders, they should uh, sit down and talk about seriously. Uh, if they continue to, uh, you know, to, to maintain the very intensive tensions between the countries, it's going to be beneficial for anyone. And if the answer is no, is there any alternative that can compromise so that uh, both countries can benefit to, to some degree? And this is precisely why uh, China have the patience and the United States still have some uh, you know, scope that they wish to talk with China. Then in addition to exchanges with the United States, what key messages or initiatives does China aim to convey during the APEC meetings? And how do you perceive China's role and objectives within the APEC framework? Well, China has the self-confidence and determination for sustainable development, the so-called socialist style uh, modernization. And uh, China have to demonstrate it to the United States and also the APEC members, as well as the rest of the world, that China have the ability, have the integrity, and, and also have the self-sufficient, self-recognized ability to maintain domestic economic growth. This is very important. Because this confidence and determination will give the United States some second thought. Like, hang on, if you continue with the tension, with China, but you cannot actually contain China as you expected. So let's talk about something else. And this is precisely what China wants to do. China also wants to tell, uh, you know, to inform the United States and other member states that uh, if you continue to open up and continue to cooperate, uh, we will not at least damage your interest. You can only benefit. And, and this is kind of message that China wants to send. Uh, cooperation means mutual benefit. Cooperation is not going to harm each other. And harming each other uh, would be not good for anyone. And this is what China wants to say. Professor, we know APEC played a crucial role in the global economy. But given the current geopolitical tensions among regions and groups, how would you assess concerns raised by many scholars, especially from Global South, about the possibility of the United States using this opportunity to perpetuate political divisions among members? Yeah, the United States, as the dominant power, the, the, the only superpower at the moment, uh, it certainly has the, the shared interest of maintaining this position. And by maintaining this position, according to uh, to to uh, you know Beacon the 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 state secretary he he, he said they got to be some sort of uh, investment so that uh, United States can compete with China in every sphere and also need to uh, coerce uh, the the airlines to work together so that they can have a much bigger economy block against China but the APEC meeting is not just for the purpose I mean even the United States want to coerce the, main, the, the allies in other uh, countries. Other countries, they have their concern, and they also have their own interest. Their concern and their interest may not be totally uh, consistent with the what the United States wants. And there will be some sort of tension between the United States and its member states. And even the United States with the, the G7 countries, for example, they have some conflict. They have some some tension themselves because not the G7 members have have exactly the same interests of the United States, let alone the developing nations in within the APEC framework. So uh, yes, they can do some extent to penetrate it and coerce some member states to believe the philosophy of the United States. But in in heart, this country they have to consider their economic position, their future perspective is just totally blindly uh, following the United States. Are they going to benefit? Or alternatively, they can have a more cooperative attitude toward China so that they can benefit more. And this is the balance. Thanks, Professor Yao, for your insightful opinion and time. That's Dr. Yao Shujie, Chongkong Professor of Economics at Chongqing University.
Rebecca Fatima Star Maria is the executive director of the APEC Secretariat. Chen Wei, now in San Francisco reporting on the 2023 APEC meetings, sat down with the executive director to get her view on the hot issues at this year's meetings. There are going to be a lot of important bilateral meetings during the time of the APEC Economic Leaders Meeting. One of them is the meeting between Chinese and American presidents. Now. The world is watching. As the executive director of APEC, you invited both of them onto the platform. So, what is your hope about this meeting? We all look forward to the leaders coming together. When it's such a challenging time,、uh, so much noise around the work that we do, having the leaders meet reaffirms what we've been saying all along. You know that we are committed to build、uh, stronger bonds among our communities, our economies. Seeing how we can work together to tackle all those really tough challenges, because we are all part of the global economy, you know. So none of us can go it alone, right? So having two very important economies meet, and there's a lot of noise around re-globalization, de-globalization, you know,、uh, trade protectionism. You know, what is the benefits of glo- people questioning globalization? When you have these two major economies coming together at the highest level to meet and have very important discussions, it augurs well for for the rest of us. We are watching; everybody's watching, and to see how all the the rhetoric around the trade tensions and all that can be dissipated because of meetings, you know, meetings of leaders. So we are very hopeful. And we're very more than elated, you know, to have the leaders come together. Not just not just the the two big bigger economies, but also the others, because you know we all are part of the global economy. So having that relationship among ourselves is so important, and we are so proud that APEC provides that forum for these kind of meetings to happen. There's likely to be tremendous uncertainties politically next year. And you know this so well,、uh, with great understanding of the your the economies that you are working with. So this could be a window opportunity, you see. Absolutely, you know the the fact that the the, the two important biggest economies are here to have the very important conversation, a crucial conversation at this time, really opens the door to other opportunities for the world. It adds a a, a strong note of optimism. As the year comes to a close, and we start an, another year, you know, so so it gives a lot of push to us and to all of the the folks at the working level to be encouraged. And this this is really encouraging, right? To say, oh, all the work that we did really, you know, matter. It's it's coming to fruition to bring the the two parties together. We have that platform, you know, for the bilateral meetings. I always say that yes, we bringing parties together in in a room. Twenty-one economies. That's important, but the bilateral discussions, the sideline discussions, are equally important, and they add and they build, you know, to what happens in the room at the end of the day. If you were providing advice or suggestions to these two leaders and their great teams, what do you think should be on the top of the agenda? It's so easy to look at what divides us. It's more important to look at what unites us. What brings us together? What brings benefits to us? And to not look at the narrow perspective, but look at the broader perspective, the more holistic benefits that we we bring, you know, to、uh, the opportunity that we have to bring to global growth. If we think that way, I think that's I'm a, I'm I'm an optimist by nature. So that opportunity to really focus on what unites us, what would bring benefit. To the global economy, not just to our, to our economies individually, but really how we contribute to the greater good. I think that's that should be the the focus of the conversation. There are a lot of concepts, as you know,、uh, Madam Executive Director, throwing around、uh, the zero sum game, uh, decoupling, de-risking,、uh, uh, and the list goes on. So, how do you see the nature of these concepts? I'm not saying they're all the same.、Uh, of course, there are differences, but How do you see these kind of concepts being thrown around? How much can we rely on the interpretation of these concepts, or rely on the real interactions face to face 
to bring real ideas into any concepts that might come out of it. You know, the work that is being done in APEC, there's, there's work to, for example, streamline some of our processes. This, con- this, this kind of work, the structural reform, regulatory reform, these are things that trans- help to translate all those big ideas into what happens on the ground. And we have, we have systems for, for that kind of engagement. For example, during COVID, one of the things that we were able to do, because we had our system in place, huh, one of the things that we, could, we were able to do very quickly was to get the customs authorities together, to bring them together to ensure the flow of goods. Looking again at, at regulation, making sure that you know, we, we streamline our regulations very quickly to move our essential medical products and, and essential goods. It may now sound uh, sexy, but this is really essential, yeah. The reason we were able to do that was because we had the system in place. And we already had that sort of mindset about working on reform. So we have a customs working group, for example. So we just activated it. We said, okay, now it's not business as usual. You don't have your meetings once a month or once, a, once in two months or whatever. Now you have to meet immediately to sort things out. And they did, and they met online and they sorted it out. So because we already had the system, so just activate it. A lot of energy I can feel around this year, uh, particularly on the theme of creating sustainable and resilient future for all. What is your understanding of this specific topic? The topic really builds on all the work that we've been doing the last few years from the time we came up with the vision, the APEC Putrajaya Vision 2040, right through the Aotearoa Plan of Action to implement the vision. Last, moving on last year, where we narrowed the focus to the biocircular green economy model. And so the U.S. is just building on that. So, you know, the sustainable and resilient future for all is something that resonates with all of us. Is really the core of the work that we are doing. You know, what what is... The work that we're doing really at the end of the day is to make sure that we have a really sustainable and resilient future for everybody in, in APEC and, and by extension the world, right? Yeah. There's a lot of content, in fact, that one could interpret out of this theme. It can be about climate change, our response to that collectively. It can be about trade and economic development. It can be about the potential of cooperation among all the economies. So which area are you particularly looking into at this moment? So I think it is, if we're looking at it holistically, when we talk about sustainable and resilience, sustainability and resilience, rather it's, it's really looking at it holistically. When you talk of sustainability, it's not just about the climate, it's also about being very inclusive. You know, it's about being, uh, looking at the sustainability of businesses. So it's really a more holistic approach to it. And when you're talking of resilience, you're talking about business resilience, supply chain resilience, about us working together as a community, you know. So the different layers of to the to the concept of sustainability and resilience. But at the end of the day, it's about how we all work together to ensure that we have this future that we set out for ourselves through the Putrajaya vision, you know. Yeah. I know it takes a lot of work to bring everybody on board on the same topic, on the same vision. So how was it like from last year until today for you as the executive director? If there's so much happening and lots of challenges, not just the challenge of climate change. We've seen um, the, the disasters, the natural disasters, climate, extreme climate uh, events around the world. We've seen geopolitical challenges. It's, and this is when, you know, I, it really matters that we come together because no one economy can deal with these challenges by themselves. You know, we've seen it through COVID. None of us could manage COVID by ourselves. We needed to come together. And we will see this more and more as we face global challenges. It is so important that we come together. And I think um, for me, APEC provides the ideal platform for for us to be, uh, you know, to work together. When you consider the membership of APEC, we have got this diverse group of economies. We've got um, the major players in the global economy. We've got um, the middle powers also in, the, in, 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 in APEC. So all of us have that possibility of working together, looking not just from our own perspective, our, nas- our, our domestic interests, but also our collective interests. And I think 
that's that's what we set out for ourselves when we came out with the Aotearoa plan of action. You know, the vision, then you have the, the plan of action, right? And in that plan of action, we talk about individual and collective actions. So, you know, so you have to find that balance um, so that we all benefit at the end of the day. It's sustainability, resilience for all of us, right? So, so that, that keeps coming back to all of us as we, as we plan our work. The different work streams uh, in APEC focus on, on these two, two core themes, right? That was Executive Director of APEC Secretariat, Rebecca Fatima Stamaria. This is Real Today. We'll be back. You've been listening to Road Today with Mika Anna in Beijing. European Union countries and lawmakers at the European Parliament have reached a deal on rules to secure the bloc's supply of critical raw materials amid a race with the U.S. and China. The European Commission proposed the Critical Raw Materials Act in March, a centerpiece of EU strategy to ensure its access to a secure, affordable and sustainable supply of raw materials crucial to the digital digital industry, aerospace, defense sector, and green energy push. So how does the act align with the EU's larger goals and its trade relations with other parties? For this and more, let's have Helga Zeppler-Rouge, founder of the Schiller Institute, a Germany-based political and economic think tank. Thanks for joining us, Helga. Yes, hello. Good day. According to the EU, the act aims to compete with the United States and China in manufacturing clean technology products. In what ways do you think this act uh, will enhance the EU's competitiveness and are there any potential areas where the EU may face challenges in this global competition? Well, I think it's um, clear that the raw materials, strategic raw materials, are largely controlled by the U.S. and the Anglosphere, especially in third continents like Africa and elsewhere. And the EU is practically nowhere to be seen. So if, um, you know, the <clears throat> EU is um, uh, trying to decrease dependency from China, it will basically be the same thing like in the energy sector where we have seen that the effort to reduce energy dependency from Russia led to an increased energy dependency on the United States. And this could happen also in the area of strategic raw materials because the EU, if they would try now to develop their own mining, first of all, this would take years before it uh, would be realized. And then there are environmental issues. And given the green climate in Europe, this would not be so easy to sell to the public. So I think this is, again, one of these situations where ideology has a stronger role than practical uh, common sense. According to the Act, China is the main exporter of 19 of the 34 key raw materials identified by the parliament. How might this law impact EU-China relations well, I think it is, again, you know, the, the ideology comes into the way of uh, of economics science. The green transition is uh, already running into difficulties uh, because, you know, economically it goes to lower energy flux density in the production, which is not economically efficient. Uh, you can see this in Germany, which is collapsing right now. So there is really no replacement for cooperation with China, but that is not the attitude. For example, the new Draghi Commission, uh, I think they are working on protective tariffs for e-cars. And, uh, you know, then the question is, will China react? Then we will have a, a trade war if China does not react, which, you know, may happen because I think there is a, a rethinking that e-cars may not be environmentally as sound as they were promoted in the first place because they need an enormous amount of energy. So I think this is a, an open question. 
Helga, in recent days, we have seen more rational engagement and dialogue in high-level contacts between China and the EU, and both sides、uh, seem to be seeking common ground to promote cooperation. But at the same time, we have seen pressure from the EU on issues such as Chinese EVs, and、uh, now this. How do you understand the EU's current policy towards China? Well, if I would be a Chinese, I would have also difficulties to trust this because this comes across as very double-faced. You know, the EU talks about de-risking as if this would be different from the American decoupling, but in reality, it's really the same. And I think that the EU is at this point not acting in their own interest, but they're giving into Washington pressure. A report say the first China-EU summit in four years have been tentatively scheduled for next month.、Uh, with the changing dynamics globally, how might the EU and China navigate this relationship, especially in light of recent engagements? I mean, obviously, to have a summit in person at all after four years is very valuable because you know when you talk to people face to face. There's always the chance to reach out and, and find an understanding, but I think what we see is a, a huge clash between the industry, who basically says there is no replacement for the cooperation with China, as compared to the ideologues in the political、uh, area. And I do not think that this political establishment、um, will change. Um, because they are ideologues,、uh, but there come elections soon in the European Parliament,、uh, you know, in the United States. So one can only hope that we can manage to get through this period until a more reasonable political leadership comes into power. Speaking of that, during high-level exchanges, both sides expressed a commitment to enhancing mutual understanding and trust. In your opinion, how crucial is mutual understanding in the context of China-EU relations today, especially considering the diversity of interests and values? Well, I wish I could say something more positive, but I do not see a change in the geopolitical mentality、uh, yet. Uh, because the Europeans just do not get it. I mean, when you hear when they are talking, they say, you know, Chinese imperialism and all of these things, which is just not true. I think it's any observer can see that China has absolutely no intention to replace、uh, U.S. imperialism or anything like that, and also not to replace the dollar. I think China <clears throat> wants to have a multilateral system. Where the renminbi will have a stronger role because Chinese economy is playing a stronger role, and I think the Europeans would really be well advised if they would understand that there are so many areas where cooperation is needed. I mean, just look at the Middle East, where China has made this extremely important proposal to have a Mid-East-Southwest Asian peace conference. To prevent the crisis around Gaza to explode into a regional war, which in the worst case could become even a global war, and you know I think the Chinese proposal, you know, is really the only realistic proposal on the table、uh, to come back to peace in the Middle East, and you know therefore Europe should should act in its own interest and support this. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Helga, for your insightful analysis. That's Helga Zeppler-Rusch, founder of the Schiller Institute, a Germany-based political and economic think tank. You're listening to Road Today. Stay with us. From sustainability and digitalization to trade, health, and energy security, 21 major Asia-Pacific economies gather to address the most pressing global challenges. And to create a future of sustainable economic growth. Join CGTN for our coverage of APEC 2023. 
This is Road Today. Spain's acting prime minister Pedro Sanchez will seek a new term in a confidence vote in parliament this week after he struck a deal with Catalan politicians to shorten up their support and secure a majority. Sanchez's Socialist Party published an amnesty law for Catalan politicians involved in an independence referendum, a key condition for smaller parties' support. The amnesty, aiming to resolve the Catalan conflict, has triggered protest and criticism over the weekend. So, how will the move further impact the political landscape in Spain? Joining us on the line is Dr. Cui Hongjian, professor with the Academy of Regional and Global Governance, Beijing Foreign Studies University. Thanks for joining us, Professor Cui. Hi. First of all, how do you perceive the impact of the proposed amnesty for Catalan politicians on the overall political landscape of Spain? As we know, recent years, some、uh, you know uncertainties in the、uh, Spanish、uh, politics. Even now, as we know, Mr. Sanchez and his、uh, party is aiming to、uh, win the、uh, parliamentary vote. So, as a result, this、uh, amnesty、uh, for some. Uh, Uh, you know,、uh, politicians who has been involved into the independent movement. I think they, it will give some another uncertainties to the、uh, politics, especially if we look at the uh, uh, you know the protest、uh, in the street and also some very strong opposition from other parties. So I'm afraid that another round of the、uh, you know instability of the politics in Spain. Uh, will continue,、uh, but of course, I think not only in this uh, uh, competition between different parties, and also、uh, it will raise again the issue of uh, uh, independence uh, for Catalonia and some other regions.、Uh, there were massive protests in Madrid. What are the key concerns and motivations driving the protesters against the proposed amnesty for Catalan politicians? If we look back、uh, to the、uh, previous, I mean, several years ago, the so-called independent movement、uh, in Catalonia, we can find out this、um, very very sharp disagreement and also even conflict between Madrid and some other regions and this、uh, Catalonia. As we know,、uh, it's a long tradition、uh, for Catalonia to、uh, try to、uh, you know call for、uh, independence. And of course, always、uh, it shows、um, conflict or also、uh, very bad relations between the central government in Madrid and also local government in、mm-hmm. Catalonia. So I think that uh, uh, this very very strong opposition from uh, uh, citizens in Madrid、uh, showed、uh, you know uh, uh, intensively this、um, uh, opposition from the central government or. Uh, those people who living in other regions of Spain, towards this,、um, uh, as we those the certain regions uh, uh, independent uh, movement. So I think it also shows perhaps some other unsatisfaction、uh, for、uh, Spanish people. The government and also the ruling parties. Speaking of that, the amnesty plan has been met with strong oppositions from various sectors, including the judiciary, law enforcement, and business groups. So, in your opinion, how might this widespread anger shape the public's perception of the political leadership in Spain in the near future?、Uh, if we still remember. Several years ago, how、uh, the central government in Spain uh, took uh, uh, major efforts to stop this、uh, tendency or movement of、uh, independence, we can understand now why there is a wider opposition from、uh, public opinion, from the societies towards the uh, uh, government、uh, decision. So I think now、um, it depends on how. The、uh, government, especially the ruling party, to look at this、uh, result or impact of the、uh, protest and also opposition from other parties, from the public opinion.、Uh, if if the government just think, okay, it's just a、uh, you know temporary uh, you know uh, 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 reactions, and it will not be the long term、uh, impact on the stability of politics, perhaps.、Mm-hmm. It will take some more time、uh, to wait for the、uh, 
uh, calm down of the uh, public opinion. But otherwise, of course, uh, I'm not sure that uh, once there are some other, uh, you know, oppositions, other unsatisfactions from the uh, community, perhaps it will become a trigger for the long-term uncertainties and also instability in the uh, Spanish politics. Prime Minister Sanchez argues that the amnesty is a necessary step to defuse the Catalan conflict. How effective do you think such a measure can be in addressing deeply rooted issues like this? To some degree, I think to release some uh, politicians uh, who involved into the independent movement uh, is a political tactic to uh, you know reach a compromise with. Uh, uh, those politicians, especially local people, uh, also, you know, to uh, keep the unification of the uh, uh, span and also to keep the uh, integrity of the sovereignty to some degree or so, on some time. Uh, it's necessary to reach a you know, compromise between the conflicting sides. But now the uh, problem is how who will prove that this uh, judgment from the government, from the uh, Minister uh, from uh, uh, Mr. Sanchez is right. Especially, uh, maybe there will be another scenario. Once the uh, uh, those politicians uh, go back to the Catalonia, maybe they will try to raise the issue of the independence again, and perhaps will give some more dynamic to any kind of a independent movement. At that time, I'm not sure uh, if it's uh, correct to say. Mr. Sanchez's judgment is good or not for mm. Spanish. Professor, reports say the recent agreements have provided Sanchez with the broadest support in the Spanish Congress in over a decade. He's seemingly on course to secure a new term through a parliamentary vote. So how do you anticipate the dynamics of his career and policy approach evolving in the time to come? Actually, you know, uh, some uh, months ago, uh, there are some. There were some uncertainties or instabilities, some oppositions to the uh, ruling party and the government. And at that time, Mr. Sanchez uh, took some uh, tactics to try to calm down the operation. And now it looks like uh, he and his party will win the majority in the parliament. Uh, it looks like uh, he won't for some more. Uh, popularity or support from uh, people. But now, another, I think, a big question, not only because it's, uh, of this, uh, uh, you know, an amnesty issue and maybe some other issue, uh, I think still Mr. Sanchez and uh, his party are facing some uh, very, very big challenges, uh, not only in the politics and also economy or some other. So perhaps uh, it's time for uh, it, it, it's a time too early for Mr. Sanchez and his party uh, to, uh, you know, show some more uh, position as a victor. Perhaps uh, he should take some more uh, caution about any kind of uh, new challenges ahead. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Dr. Tui. Appreciate your time. That's Dr. Tui Hongjian, Professor with the Academy of Regional and Global Governance at Beijing Foreign Studies University. This is Road Today. Stay with us. Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China, on China and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today. You've been listening to Road Today. British Prime Minister Rich Sunak has brought back former Prime Minister David Cameron as foreign minister. Cameron says Britain is facing some daunting international challenges, such as the conflict in the Middle East and the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. I hope that six years as Prime Minister, 11 years leading the Conservative Party, gives me some useful experience and contacts and relationships and knowledge that I can help the Prime Minister to make sure we build our alliances, we build partnerships with our friends, we deter our enemies and we keep our country strong.
It was the latest reset for a prime minister whose party is badly lagging the opposition Labour Party before an election expected next year. The return of Cameron also sparks renewed debates over Brexit, which Cameron triggered by holding a referendum in 2016, even though he backed staying in the bloc. To delve deeper into the significance of Cameron's return and the broader political landscape of the United Kingdom, we're joined on the line by Mike. Basting, senior lecturer at the University of Southampton. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Thank you. Hello. First of all, the new appointment follows Sunak's decision on a cabinet reshuffle. Given the current situation and the return of David Cameron to the political scene, how do you interpret、um, Sunak's strategy in terms of party dynamics and the upcoming election? Well, I think Cameron's return, first of all, was a, was a, a shock. It was, it was well.、Um, It was kept quiet, so it wasn't leaked. Even though the, the appointment apparently was made last week, so it really had a, a real impact in terms of diverting attention, perhaps from from other、uh, news that Sunak didn't want, and that's Braverman's sacking. Clearly, what he's trying to do is reposition the, the, the Conservative Party, the leadership, to a more centrist position, a more caring position that Cam- Cameron himself tried to to adopt and fill. As party leader, described himself very much as a liberal conservative, very much on that liberal wing of the, the Tory party.、Uh, he's very high profile. He very publicly backed Remain in, in the, the Euro、uh, referendum, and then resigned as a result when he himself lost. He backed、um, the legalisation of gay marriage, much to the opposition of a lot of his own party, his parliamentary party. So I think it's an attempt to. To reposition the party as a more moderate, caring, sharing party, and as you say, close that often twenty-point gap that has been there for a while with the the opposition Labour Party. Is Cameron missed by the public? How the public perceive this decision? I think they'll be surprised. It, it's very he himself was probably a bit surprised. It's quite unusual for former prime ministers to come back to、uh, frontline politics. This is one of the top three positions. Obviously, the Chancellor. Is seen as largely as the number two,、uh, but then closely followed by the Home Secretary and also the Foreign Secretary. So, so Foreign Secretary to to one of the, still the major economies in the world is a very powerful position. So I think the public will be surprised,、mm-hmm. uh, a bit mixed mixed feelings. I don't think he was a terribly popular Prime Minister,、uh, but then again, he, yeah, he wasn't terribly unpopular. The Conservative Party seems to be experiencing some internal tensions, particularly between the、uh, centrist and right-wing factions. How might this reshuffle affect the party's unity and its、uh, ability to present as a cohesive image to the public? I think that remains to be seen. I think that largely has a lot to do with what happens between now and next year, when there will be a general election, maybe in the spring, maybe in September. The autumn next year, that they run as long as they can. What Sunak has done, he's, he's very high profile in terms of、um, bringing back David Cameron, but he's also brought back some some、uh, members of the Eurosceptic wing as well. So Andrea Leadsom, for example, and one or two others, and also Esther McVeigh、uh, has been appointed back in the cabinet as well, who's very outspoken, a little bit more right wing. So I think he, he's trying to create some sort of careful balance. How it will be received by, by the British public, I think. Determined will be determined largely by the, the the performance of the UK economy over the next year, which, as we see, is still is still struggling. So I think it really is the economic impact、uh, that this will have, and, and that remains to be seen. Mm-hmm. Mike, the return of Cameron sparks renewed debates over Brexit.、Uh, the term Brexit surrender has been used by some critics within the party. So, how do you think the public is likely to perceive this this topic, and what challenges or opportunities does it pose for the Conservative Party in terms of this、mm-hmm. message? Well, the term Brexit surrender has been. Coined by the the, the Eurosceptic, the Eurosceptic wing of the, the parliamentary Tory parties,、so、I don't think it's a very popular term with the British people, and, and regularly now for for many many years, when polls are are produced, the British people often do、uh, reflect on that decision and regret Brexit, so that there is a widely held feeling that really that the decision was the wrong decision, and if there was a a referendum again, the decision would be reversed. It's perhaps not a bad decision to bring back Cameron, because as you say, he very publicly backed the Remain 
camp was very much leader of the Remain, uh, the main part of the, the Remain group, uh, but lost. So I think it actually may be quite a positive thing. And I think what we'll see with the, the Tory government more and more is, is climb down from that very harsh Eurosceptic stance and accept conciliation, collaboration, and compromise with the EU over the the implementation of, of Brexit. So I think it's probably a good thing and will go down well with the British public. With the appointment of David Cameron, there seems to be a shift toward bringing experienced figures to the cabinet. How important do you think experience is in political leadership in today's UK. Do you think that's what's missing in the British political arena right now? I think it is. I think it's absolutely fundamental. And what we've seen over quite a few years is career politicians who perhaps reach the top, reach very senior positions at quite a young age with no real background except in politics, no real background in industry. So Cameron's reappointment is good in the fact that he was prime minister for many, many years. He led the Conservative Party, so he, he does have experience, connections and relationships internationally as Foreign Secretary. I think that's very, very important. But I think it has to be said that Cameron himself was appointed at quite a young age and really had very little background apart from being uh, some sort of Conservative Party aide or advisor over quite a few years. So, so I think we, we need to see more of this. And it'd be nice to see politicians who've had respected, distinguished careers in different areas of society and business, and not just career politicians. Sunak himself is exactly in that mould. I mean, he does have some experience, but he's you know, still quite young to be in office. So yes, much, much more experience is needed across these very senior positions. So one last question. In general, how do you assess the potential and impact of this recent government changes on on the dynamics leading up to the election next year? I don't think it'll have much of an impact. I think the government's in for a rough ride. There's some important decisions ahead. Inflation figures are coming out. Court's decision on the government's Rwanda policy, very controversial. The UK economy is still struggling. It's still a divided government. He's trying to patch over the cracks. It may well be that we'll see Braverman launch some sort of leadership bid if the Conservatives fail to close that gap and if they lose the next election. So I think it's an attempt to shore up the party, reposition the party, but I'm not sure that it will succeed. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Mike. That's Mike Basting, Senior Lecturer at the University of Southampton. That's all the time for this edition of World Today with Mika Anna. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.